Hi everyone, this is Eugene with just a few words before this episode. Uh, to be honest, I knew very, very, very little about Cuba going into this conversation, so it was a huge privilege and honor to learn about Cuban history with Professor Carlos Ayer, who taught Paul at Yale and is a very, very well-known scholar in this field. And the main topic that they talk about is Operation Pedro Pan, which was a mass emigration of minors out of Cuba into the U.S. in the early 1960s. And these children were sent by their parents because of rumors that Fidel Castro and his government would put children into communist indoctrination camps. So Professor Ayer, who personally experienced this and was separated from his family, not only brings us through this history through his own personal experience of leaving Cuba, but at the end of the conversation uh, gets to really, really at least I think, really, really unique perspectives on the choices parents sometimes have to make for the sake of their children. And this element of choice is something that has come up again and again and again throughout the interviews that I've done. And recently, I've been thinking a lot about how these choices rub up against the circumstances that constrain them. So, for example, in a previous episode with Yunmi Park, she talks about how North Korean defectors have to leave their families without telling them where they're going because of the consequences that could befall those who know where their uh, loved one has gone, and then they might be tortured or otherwise punished. So on the one hand, this is a choice, but on the other hand, it's very hard for me to really call it a choice given that, you know, it's not really a fair option between uh, choice A and choice B. So in this episode, Professor Ayer brings, from his perspective, brings a unique uh, understanding that, you know, sometimes the decision for a parent to be separated from their own child could be necessary for the greater good you know, if that means giving that child a better life. And for me, what I hope to keep thinking about is what a choice or a decision even is. Can they even really be called those? Because these individuals are put in such difficult circumstances. And while they may not have the best options to choose between, I'm sure that they still personally bear the brunt of making that decision and feeling like they were responsible, even if they were not, or, or at least not fully. So I'm going to save these thoughts for the future. Uh, but for now, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Paul and uh, his former professor, Carlos Ayer. University. Yale is a place where everyone is busy all the time. So I really appreciate you making time to do this interview. My pleasure. So the first question we usually ask on this podcast is, how did you get interested in this issue of family separation or divided families? But I thought that given your case and your experience, that that question seemed not adequate to capture your experience. So, I mean, would you, could you begin by sharing your story of family separation? I was born in Cuba in 1950. And of course, I lived through all the momentous changes that the Castro regime likes to call the Cuban revolution. Beginning in 1959, things began to get very unstable and also very nasty. By the end of 1959, the beginning of 1960, it was pretty clear that a totalitarian state was being set up. And very soon after that, not only was it going to be a totalitarian type dictatorship, but it was also communism allied with the Soviet Union. So things got really hairy very quickly. And by 1961, 
all of the schools in Cuba were taken over by the government and children began to be sent to the Soviet Union and satellites of the Soviet Union. And their parents had nothing to say about it. The kids would just be sent. And I should add that in Cuba, there were a lot of Spanish immigrants and children of Spanish immigrants, my whole family, for instance, who remembered that a similar thing had happened in Spain in the 1930s during the Civil War, that thousands of Spanish children were sent to the Soviet Union and were never seen again. So parents panicked. And to make a very long story as short as possible, an airlift was set up from the United States to rescue Cuban children. It was intended as a temporary measure. The bottom line was this. The U.S. State Department could give visa waivers to children, but it couldn't grant visas to adults without a security clearance. So there was a gap of some months between the kids getting their visa waivers and coming to the United States and then their parents joining them in the United States. In the case of my family, what happened was just uh, bad timing. Okay, let me back up one step. Between January 1961 and October of 1962, 14,000 unaccompanied children left with this program and came to the United States. 14,000. When the program ended in October of 1962, suddenly, because of the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis, there were at least 66,000 more children waiting to leave who were trapped in the island because the door slammed shut. When Fidel Castro had his uh, nuclear missiles taken away by the Soviet Union, his immediate response was to close the doors and nobody could leave Cuba. Not only were these 66,000 children trapped, my parents were trapped, including parents of over 10,000 other children were trapped and couldn't leave Cuba. So that was the situation. And sorry, if I could just interject and clarify, why was it that it was only the children who were allowed to be granted these visa waivers and not, not the parents, not the complete families? The parents needed security clearances. Ah, I see. And the Castro regime was also interested in breaking up families and would normally uh, not grant permission to leave to the fathers in many of these families. And that continued for decades afterwards. What would normally happen if a family wanted to leave together is that the Castro regime would not allow the father to leave. The father would then immediately lose his job and the family would immediately lose all their property and the father would be sent to a labor camp for an indeterminate amount of time. Never stated beforehand how long it would be. And that happened to tens of thousands of families. And and in your case, your family's case, how did your family decide to send you and your brother, Tony? Well, it was very painful, as it was for every family. And it was all very hush-hush. It was all word of mouth that this program existed because it couldn't be advertised. And it was the mothers who actually did all the legwork. There was one house, just one house. And Cuba is a big island. It's about the size of Pennsylvania. There's one house in Havana where the visa waivers were cranked out on a, an old-fashioned mimeograph machine. The mothers would go there, get the visa waivers. 
There was one individual given carte blanche by the U.S. State Department. He was an Irish priest, Monsignor Walsh, who got this program rolling. And it was a program run jointly by the U.S. State Department and several religious agencies in the United States. Since most Cubans were Catholics, the largest number of children left through the Catholic agency. But there were also a great number of Protestants and Jews. And Asia, the Asian children who were not Christian left under another association that was, of course, obviously not a church, but it was some kind of other uh, welfare organization. We had a lot of Chinese immigrants in Cuba, and many of the Chinese children also left under this program. Could you share a little bit about your experience, actually, in that moment when you were on your way to the U.S. and saying goodbye to your family? By the time I left, everyone who had been my friend growing up had already left under this program. So I had been to the airport once or twice to see my friends leave. I knew exactly what was coming up. I was 11 when I left. So like any 11-year-old, I had mixed feelings, mixed emotions, and I didn't know how to deal with them. I was scared. I was happy. I was deliriously happy to be leaving Cuba because I knew it was a bad place and I knew it was there was probably little chance that it would improve anytime soon. And for an 11-year-old, you know, one year is like an eternity. So I thought, my God, I can't stand it here anymore. So I was glad to leave. My brother was not so glad. But what ended up happening was we got to the U.S., part of this program. We went to camps, refugee camps for, for children. The teenage boys went to one camp. The under teenage boys and all girls went to a different camp. So my brother and I were separated immediately. And then after a couple of weeks in these camps, because there were processing centers, the camps couldn't take in all the kids. They weren't big enough. The whole program ran on placing children in foster homes anywhere. These were the camps in Florida, in Miami? The camps in Florida, yes. And according to somebody who's done research, kids were sent to 40 different states. I think, I think it's actually a larger number. I think we were sent to more than 40 states. We got scattered all over the United States. Foster families, orphanages. For Catholics, there were still, back then, a good number of Catholic boarding schools, especially for girls. A lot of the girls ended up being sent to boarding, Catholic boarding schools for girls run by nuns. My brother and I ended up with two, two different families in Miami. American Jewish families who took us in. We had a family connection with from Cuba. A friend of a friend of a friend knew them. We ended up with them. And their plan was to take us in for just a few months until our mom arrived, because my father would not be granted permission to leave. So our mom had an exit permit from the Castro regime for November something, 5th, 6th, 7th, something like that, 1962. But then came the missile crisis and the door slammed shut on October 26th, 1962, and she was trapped and she couldn't leave. So the original plan was for your mother to join you and your brother in the U.S. immediately afterwards? Yes. And then all of this was 
you know, temporary. We didn't think it would go on for years and years and years. Then either my father would be granted permission or he would spend time in a labor camp or the Castro regime would collapse. You know, something good was going to happen and eventually we would all be reunited. But it didn't turn out that way because my father never got out and I never saw him again. So the last time you saw him was when you were was it 11, 11 years old? That's right, at the airport. And then when he died in 1976, I was 25 years old. And this happened to tens of thousands of families. I grew up, actually, my, my teenage years, I thought this was normal. <laughs> it's not It's not until I became an adult and moved out of the Chicago area where there were a lot of Cubans. And a lot of kids in my high school had gone through the same thing. I thought it was so normal. When people started asking me questions about it, like it was a weird thing, I didn't understand why anyone thought it was weird. I just thought that's the way life is. Well, it seems very abnormal about this case, this Operation Peter Pan, Pedro Pan, is that I feel like with most stories of family separation, like at the U.S.-Mexico border or in you know, wars, the families are separated involuntarily, right? They're ripped apart by an external force, by a border or by police. But it seems like in this case, it was the parents, your parents, intentionally sending you and your brother, their children, is an intentional case of family separation, which seems very counterintuitive, don't you think? It is counterintuitive, unless you're living in a totalitarian state with a history of stealing children from their parents and here comes the involuntary thing, sending them to another country with the possibility of the parents never seeing them again. My parents, when they explained all this to me, and they explained it in various ways, said, we're sending you to the United States because it seems that Cuban children are going to be sent to all kinds of countries in Eastern Europe and to the Soviet Union. So if you're going to be taken from us, we would rather you have a future in the United States than in the Soviet empire and that you have freedom rather than having to live in a totalitarian society. It was put that bluntly to us. We don't want you to end up in Prague. We don't want you to end up in Moscow or Minsk or some other place. Better that you be in the United States. And I couldn't have agreed more. I was, I was 100% so you think that was a legitimate risk? Oh, yes, definitely. And those that were not sent to the Soviet Union would be taken away from their parents in other ways. Constant indoctrination at school. And here's a little, a little footnote. It's, it's, actually, it's a giant footnote. Most people don't know about because I run into, I've run into so many thousands of people who say, oh, but they have free education in Cuba. No. The education is not free. Children in the summer are all sent to labor camps for the entire summer without their parents. <laughs> so even if I hadn't been sent to the Soviet Union, I would have had to go to those labor camps during the summer. And during the school year, I would have been constantly indoctrinated. And there was also a religious question because uh, religion was outlawed and any child in Cuba 
from that time on, from the early 60s to the present, this is still going on, who attends any kind of religious instruction, their so-called free education ends at age 14. They become pariahs, and um, they're marked. And if you don't join the Young Communist Party, and if you don't uh, join the pioneers and do all kinds of the things that they want everybody to do, you're marked. And you can expect to have a pretty miserable life. It sounds strikingly similar to some current cases today, you know, in countries like China or North Korea. Yes. So labor camps and... Yep, absolutely. Uh, what's happening in China, in Western China with, with the Muslims and the way families are being separated and the way people are being thrown into re-education camps. Cuba had re-education camps too. It, it's a common practice of totalitarian states of the communist persuasion. <laughs> if I had stayed, I know what would have happened to me. I would have ended up in prison at some point. But I remember reading, you know, you mentioned this in your first memoir, Waiting for Snow in Havana, how you came to be reunited with your mother back in the U.S. But could you talk a little bit about how that happened? And did you always have this hope of actively seeking to reunite with your with your mother back in the U.S., or was this something that happened one day? There was nothing I could do or anyone could do at this end in the United States because um, Cuba and the U.S. had uh, broken relations, and the only way to get out of Cuba, which was very hard and very few people managed to do it, was to get a visa to some other country and then go to that country and then apply for entrance to the United States from that other country. So my mom kept trying over a period of three years. She made it to the airport twice during those three years. One time was through Spain. The other time, I think, might have also been through Spain. But they took her off the plane and told her, sorry, can't leave, we need your seat for someone else. Apply again. She finally left through Mexico. She had a childhood friend who had ended up in Mexico and fortunately was well off because imagine you land, you, you leave Cuba to another country. Nobody could take any money with them from Cuba. You couldn't take one penny one cent with you. You had to leave with three changes of clothing. That was all you were allowed. So you arrive in some other country and you have zero money, zero job. Basically, you, you needed a sponsor to support you at that other country while you applied for entrance to the U.S. And she was lucky enough to have a friend who did that for her in Mexico. And it took her from April 1965 to late September 1965, to get to the United States. How many years had it been when you, when you finally... Three and a half by the time we reunited, because it took her then some months to make it possible in Miami. She had to leave Miami. She was forced out of Miami because there were not enough jobs. She was sent to Chicago. So that's where we got reunited. Do you remember the day when you... Saw your mother again? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a, you know, it's one of those landmark memories that one has. November 3rd, 1965, at Union Station in Chicago. We went up by train. We 
we had been living with an uncle in central Illinois for two years who had left at the very last moment and had been resettled to Illinois. So the uncle was the one who coordinated with your mother? She basically did everything herself. What our, our uncle did, God bless him, was give us a house and a home for over two years. And that's the most he could do because he didn't have much of an income. And in my junior high school, there were only two of us who were foreigners. It was wow. me and there was a German boy. The rumor was his father had flown for the Luftwaffe. The German boy got all the abuse. I, I got very little abuse, if any, because nobody knew anything about Cuba, right? But every American boy knew about Germans and Nazis. And could you say a little bit more about what happened at Union Station in Chicago on that day, November 3rd, 1965? It was very surreal because our mom was older. She had gone from having brown hair to having a lot of gray hair. That's the first thing that struck me. She was still the same, pretty, pretty much so, but we were not. My brother and I were not. We had grown and matured. My mom said she was horrified by the size of my feet and my hands. <laughs> my brother and I had gotten used to being on our own. We didn't need a parent anymore. We knew how to take care of ourselves. So all of a sudden, we had a parent, but our mom knew no English. She was physically handicapped from polio, and she had no work skills because, you know, she was a... 1950s housewife. All of a sudden, the roles were reversed. My brother and I had to take care of our mom. We had to find an apartment. We had to get jobs. My brother and I both went to work full time. My brother was able to drop out of high school because he was turning 18, but I was still only 15. So I worked full time at night and went to high school during the day. It was not, in that respect, a happy, pleasant reunion. It was, for a teenage boy, I'll be honest, it was kind of hellish. Don't get me wrong, I was happy to be reunited with my mom, but everything else was very, very difficult, awful. It, it, it never, never became normal. It couldn't, because our dad was still trapped in Cuba. It almost seems like even though you were physically reunited, it was still a divided family in terms of cultural and these barriers that sprung up in the few years you were in the States. Right. But I'll return to this again. I'll say it again. I knew so many other human kids my age or my brother's age who were in exactly the same situation. I just thought this is the way life was. It was normal. Plus, the high school I ended up going to in Chicago, a public high school, we didn't pick this neighborhood. We didn't pick the school. We just happened to find an apartment there. My school was full of immigrants from all over the world. And our principal had a map of the world in his office with pins in it. Boy, Antarctica and Australia were the only two continents without pins. We had everything. Plus, we had a lot of children of Holocaust survive in my high school. And one of my best friends became, he was Chinese. His father had been secretary to Chiang Kai-shek before Mao took over. 
And, you know, he was a highly educated man, and he was working in a restaurant. This is in Illinois. This is in central Illinois. In Chicago. No, this is in Chicago. In Chicago. And our high school also had a lot of Japanese kids, all of their parents, all of them, each and every one of them, their parents had been in detention camps during the Second World War. So all of this stuff was kind of like normal. (laughs) I didn't think twice about it. It was, you know, oh, well, you know, my story's different from these people, but their parents or or they themselves have gone through terrible things. So do you think this is, I mean, this is something that my grandparents say all the time is, you know, you young kids haven't been through the war and haven't been through hard times like like they have. So, you know, you don't know what what hard life really is like. Do, Do you think this is more of a generational thing of, your classmates being experiencing family separation. Any family that goes through this kind of separation or any kind of trauma, even if they all leave together, it's you know, being plopped down in alien culture. The parents and the children immediately have very different experiences. The children can adjust much more quickly than the parents can. It's very different for the two age groups. So, Children born in the United States to families like this, of course they have no clue. There's no way they can. And throughout my entire life as a father, I have three kids. The hardest thing for me has been biting my tongue when I know that they have absolutely no clue how fortunate they are <laughs> to you know, restrain myself from saying something like, because I know they won't understand. It's one of the reasons I wrote Waiting for Snow in Havana, which I read to them as I was writing it, so that they would get some clue as to what what had happened and how lucky they are. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is to record testimonies and personal accounts, kind of an oral history of people who have personally undergone family separation, like you. Well, I have to say, the kids adjust. I adjusted. Everybody I knew adjusted. We all adjusted in different ways, but we adjusted. For me, it wasn't until I got to my 30s that it all began to have an effect on me psychologically as I began to have kids of my own. That's when it all sort of assumed a different look to me. I had a different perspective. So it looked, it's like, you know, you look at things from different perspectives, they look different. I had to put it all into a very, very different frame of reference once I had kids. But just about everybody I went to high school with who was Cuban had been through very similar things. I knew many kids whose fathers were still trapped. And then I met children of Holocaust survivors uh, who would tell me, you know, um, no, I don't have any relatives. None. Just my mother and father. Nobody else survived. And then I felt, boy, now that's traumatic. I didn't think of my experience as traumatic compared to that. I saw that online. There's actually a network. There's a website for Operation Pedro Pan, the children. I don't know if you're part of that registry or that, that I am, network. I am. But most, most of them live in Miami. They have yearly a yearly bash in November. Uh, I've been to a few of them. And... You know, there are people who, like, they know each other. They've known each other for a long time. They're good friends. They live close to each other physically in Miami. 
and so on and so forth. I don't have that. But a couple of times I've been down there to Miami and uh, met up with some of my Chicago Pedro Pan friends. And it's it's always been funny to see them. They're all living close to each other in Miami. You know, they left Chicago and re-Cubanized themselves in Miami. I actually knew many other Cubans in my high school. I had no clue that they had been Pedro Pan kids separated from their families until I went to these reunions in Miami. <laughs> we don't talk about it. It's just so normal for us. What, what really gets me, though, is that the place that gave the visa waivers was a house in a suburb of Havana. And right across the street was the headquarters for the secret police. So they knew. They knew what was going on. The Castro regime did nothing to make it easy for families to leave. A few years ago, over 10 years ago, I think it was, we had a speaker come here to Yale, Carlos Franchi. And he had been a close friend and associate of the Castro brothers. He had become a propaganda minister very early on. And he came here to lecture because he had been purged. He had been thrown in prison briefly and then kicked out of Cuba in 1968 and spent the rest of his life in exile. At Yale, it was all about how he, Carlos Franchi, got kicked out of Cuba because he was a good communist, and Fidel was a bad communist. And he had told Fidel to his face that he was a bad communist. At dinner, I got to sit next to him, and I asked him, tell me, you guys knew about the families being separated. You knew about the kids leaving from that house across the street from the secret police and all this stuff. And he said, with a big smile on his face, oh yeah, of course we knew. So why, why, why did you guys just let this happen? Why'd you do it? And the smile got larger on his face. And he said, because anything that would destroy the bourgeois family was so good for us. So it was all intentional. It was a plan. If you think of it strategically, politically, yeah, that's one of the goals of communist totalitarian states is to break up the family. Family's a threat, the threat to any totalitarian regime. It keeps happening. It's, you know, it's 2020. Same stuff is still happening. Cuban families are getting separated all the time. It's very hard for an entire family to leave together. Matter of fact, it's nearly impossible for a family to leave together. And Cuba is not alone in, in that respect. But the government there, people in charge, have no desire of making it easy for families to leave together or to be reunited. Because, of course, those who leave, 98% of them are so glad to leave, they're not going to go back to live with their families. I know you're vociferously opposed to tourism to Cuba and you know you haven't gone back to Cuba since since you were 11 that's right did you ever want to go back and see your father and go back home and I have never wanted to go back under the present regime which is the same regime that's been in power for 61 years no I would have rather stayed in the United States and never seen my father again than to set foot again in that hell hole to me it's like hell honestly I know that there are Christians who picture hell, you know, with uh, flames and devils with pitchforks. My hell is Cuba. 
<laughs> That's hell. Hell on earth. Absolutely. I wouldn't want to go there. Plus, I, even if I wanted to go, I can't go because the U.S. State Department informed me that I've been placed on an enemy's list in Cuba. I shouldn't try to visit. My mom went back to visit her parents in 1979 when it first became possible. And she came back with mixed emotions. And I remember her telling me at some point in the 1990s, because there were so many Cubans who were going back to visit their families. She told me one night, she said, you know, I've had a lot of friends who've gone back to visit their families, but all of them are now, they all have to see psychiatrists when they come back because they're so horrified by what they find. And then they come back and they know that there's nothing they can do to help their families there. Even though you missed your father's, you weren't able to be at your father's funeral. Actually, when I found out he was dead, he'd already been de dead, dead for several days and already buried. But I couldn't have gone back. Back then, in, in 1976, Cuban government would not have allowed me to go visit. One of our hopes for this podcast is that, for example, for elderly Korean Americans, you know, with family in North Korea, they might not have the chance before they pass away to see their loved ones in North Korea under the current circumstances, under the current regime. So part of our hope is to record some of their stories and their messages to their loved ones so that maybe one day, you know, when North Korea is more open or when information is able to get through, they can actually listen to these messages. Is there anything that you think you would have wanted to say or tell your, your father? We got to talk irregularly. There were phone calls that you could request and you'd have to put in the request and then you were given three minutes to talk with someone listening on the Cuban end. Quite often when questions would come up like, oh, do you think you're going to get to leave? The call would be cut off. So we actually got the talk and, and you know, we wrote letters to each other. So I, I think I said to him basically everything I wanted to say. It just pained me. I thought when he died, he was in the process of getting a visa and an exit permit. They finally allowed him to leave because he developed heart disease. So he was no longer useful. And the heart disease did him in before he had a chance to leave. But, you know, in case I, I think of North Korea often because that's a, it's a similar situation, but it's very different because the country was divided in two, kind of arbitrarily. There's this line, you know, north of that line, it's hell on earth. South of that line, South Korea has become one of the most prosperous countries on earth. And families are still separated, right? And, and there's this stupid line, this parallel, yeah. 38th parallel, right? This totally arbitrary line dividing families. And I don't know if this happens between the two Koreas or not, but Cuba has become a parasitic state. It actually depends on exiles going back loaded with presents and money for the family. And I don't know if that's allowed in, by North Korea or not. I tend These to think remittances? Yeah. yeah, remittances, yeah. I'm sure it's not allowed, but I, I know it actually it happens through discreet undercover channels from what I've heard. I, I guess the last thing that I wanted to ask was this word that you've brought up a couple times and 
is uh, this concept of being in exile, which I know you've written a lot about. And what, what, I mean, what does that word mean to you? And how long did it take for you to finally stop feeling like uh, exile in this country that's now your home? Well, you can be in exile from your native land and feel at home elsewhere. The two things are not mutually exclusive. I'm an American now, but I'll never cease to be a Cuban. One never ceases to be what, what one was born as and, and was a child as. People who leave at age two or three, that's very different. But somebody who leaves at 11 like I did, or later, they never stop being part of that culture, part of that nationality. And I'm an exile. I think I'll be in exile till the day I die because I don't think I'm, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Even if I live to be 97, it's still going to be the same. I'm not going to go back. I'm very happy being an American, but there's this part of me that's been lost. I just feel this immense, it's a very odd combination of sorrow and anger. Anger over what happened what continues to happen, but even more anger at people in the rest of the world who think that what's happening in my native land is now perfectly normal. <laughs> and it's hard its hard for the others to understand that anger. I have to explain. Of course, you know, you have a very different attitude. You like to go to Cuba and see all the old cars and so on. So on. But for me, I don't want it to be that way. I, I want it to be free of this totalitarian regime. Although I don't have much hope that it would change anytime soon because the rest of Latin America is such a mess. Thanks in part to Cuba, but I, I don't see any hopeful signs anywhere in the rest of Spanish-speaking America. It's a <laughs> bit of a somber note. but well, yeah, It's a somber I mean... note, but at least, you know, Koreans look and look at South Korea and say, hey, look, 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 this is this, 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 this is what we can be. This is who we are. This, we, and, and the rest of Korea could be like this. But the Cuba thing has been going on for 61 years, the Castro thing. So I'm now, I guess I classify as an old man because I'm 69. So and I, I, I can remember what it used to be like. I remember what potential there was. But anybody younger than me, born there, who has known nothing else, it's going to be very difficult for them to bring things around and change things. I'm just resigned to what it is. You meet these characters in, in some fiction, right? You meet these Russian exiles who fled the Bolshevik revolution, living their old age in exile and still telling tales about czarist Russia and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, I think I've become one of those characters, <laughs> except it's not Russia. Do you think there are any takeaways for, for people listening to this conversation, for this podcast, of people like you, that 14,000 children, former children, for part of this Operation Pedro Pan for t today? I mean, what is the relevance for today? I thank my parents and God every day, several times a day. I thank my parents for the choice they made, the difficult choice they made. Thank God for making it possible, giving them the strength to make that choice. I think in some circumstances, granted, it's only some circumstances, allowing children to escape to a better life somewhere else, even if the family is broken up, is the lesser of two evils. 
one might even say it's it's a good thing if it happens like the jewish children who were rescued from the third reich by the kinder transport by the way the pedro pan airlift was modeled after kinder transport oh i didn't know that oh and there's one little fact that it just sounds it sounds incredible but it's true there was a british woman working at a school in Havana, a private school, which was the school at which Monsignor Walsh had a contact and started the Pedro Pan thing. This woman's name sounds like it was dreamt up. Her name was Penny Powers, who was a teacher at this school, Ruston Academy, had worked on kinder transport in England, and she knew how to run an airlift. Madeleine Albright, remember her, Secretary of State? Yeah, yeah, of course. Same thing. You know, she was a Jewish kid, rescued, who grew up in England and then the United States. Her family, I think, was also broken up. Sometimes if parents get a chance to basically throw their kid out the window as the train is moving towards a disaster, separation is not always a terrible thing. Let's put it this way. Separation is always bad. But sometimes what would happen if the separation doesn't take place? is worse than the separation. Oh, that's actually not what I was expecting to hear from the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. But uh, thank you for thank you for sharing your story and being so personal and honest. Is there anything else that you would like to leave with the listeners about your story, about the story of Cuban exiles, Peter Pan? Every family separation story due to crises is different. They all have to be looked at. Breaking up families intentionally is a horrible thing, which is what the Cuban government did. And it's what's happening around the world in various places right now. That's always awful. And there's pain involved. But actually, if the child is being rescued from a terrible situation, is it any different from having a child rescued from a burning building? It's about the same situation in some cases, not all, but in some cases. So people should be careful, make sure they're they're getting the right perspective on family separation, situation by situation, not just kind of a blanket thing. I will make sure to keep that in mind for future interviews, because, I mean, we're, we're hoping to actually interview people from all different stories of family separation, ranging from Japanese-American internment camps to stories from the U.S.-Mexico border, the Holocaust. It's everywhere, unfortunately. It's everywhere. I still remember reading your book, your memoir, Waiting for Snow in Havana, and just thinking, wow, there's so many parallels here with my family's experience, stories from the Korean War, from North Korea, but also that day after Father Bob's memorial service at St. Thomas More, I went to go see you in your office and, you know, we were talking about this issue and your story and that's really what planted the seed in my mind of having this conversation with you. So I'm just so, so glad that we were able to make it happen. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. And hopefully I can see you next time when I'm on campus. Peace be with you. Same to you. Take care. Thank you so much, Carlos.
so much for listening. And if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, please follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the music and see you next time.